This is episode 310 of the AWS podcast, released on April 28, 2019. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS podcast. Simon Leisha here with you. Great to have you back, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Jeff Bargaday. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Simon. Great to be back on the podcast with you. Good that we've managed to make the schedules align. Not always easy. <laughs> Absolutely, but late in the day is great for me. So we're going to talk two topics. We're going to talk uh, something new and something quote-unquote old. So let's start with a new thing. One of the things that uh, still comes up with cust- uh, conversations I have with customers is, hey, can I run Windows on AWS? And the answer is, of course, an emphatic yes. However, uh, Jeff, you recently did a, a blog post about Windows on AWS I think is a really useful kind of uh, mind map, if you like, of what you can do and some of the cool things that you may not be aware of what you can do. So maybe let's, uh, let's talk about how that came about. I sure did. And so the, the way things work internally, just to kind of pull back the, the curtain a bit, is that there's a lot of competition within all the different AWS teams to get blog posts. And even though we have a lot of different folks that are really great at writing blogs, they always think that it's they're somewhat special if they get a, a post from me. And it's, it's always a great honor when, when I get the chance to do that. And they came to me and said, you know, Jeff, we've done a lot of really cool work with Windows over the years. We've, we've done our best to be customer-driven and to innovate. And they'd already actually worked with one of our colleagues, Jerry Hargrove, to put together a, a really cool graphic that's in the, the blog post. And Jerry puts my my art skills to, to shame. And we were talking about just different approaches to the blog post. And it was pretty clear that they'd already really identified what we thought were really the, the most significant pieces of windows on aws so taking the diagram as a guide i really took each of the graphics and converted them to text as a starting point and it is really a nifty diagram and a, and a great map we're going to dive into some some components of it not all of it but so we're going to kind of take a potted tour through it and, and the first one is one that to be honest i had 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 missed it completely uh you know obviously a lot of customers run uh sql server databases and you can run uh, all four editions, so you can run Express, Web, Standard, and Enterprise, and you can have multiple versions of each. And for a lot of customers, upgrading their versions is undifferentiated heavy lifting. And one of the big ones at the moment is upgrading from SQL Server 2008 to SQL Server 2016. And Jeff, there's actually a tool that does this for you, which I was not aware even existed. You know, it came as a surprise to me as well, because there's Despite what a lot of people think, I don't have some kind of encyclopedic memory of every last thing that's ever happened on AWS. And I'm the first to ever disclaim that when they <laughs> accuse me of having memory. And I, to me, this really shows that we are not simply taking Windows as it is and running it on AWS, but we're listening to our customers and saying, what do you really need? And a lot of them are saying, I'm running SQL Server on an I'm running older versions, and I need a little bit of help to move to newer versions. And then whenever you talk to people about upgrading a database, they, they furrow their brow a little bit, and they think, oh, yeah, maybe next year. I'd prefer not to think about that. And the upgrade model, we've made it, tried to make it routine and straightforward and just to really set, set it up so you can get that upgrade moving with a couple of clicks with, with your choice of of destination version numbers with, with several years worth of SQL Server version numbers available from the drop-down menu. And the great thing is, is that you're also able to test the living bejesus out of it because uh, when you're doing an upgrade, you want to test, test, test. So you can spin up the new versions, do your compatibility tests, performance tests, 
even tweak the database to take advantage of new features. So it gives you uh, some good options there. Exactly, because a lot of times I talk to organizations that haven't yet made the move to the cloud. They talk about the database server as this singular entity, and there just is the server. And the idea of, of changing the server just fills everybody with just massive amounts of fear. And it's pretty unusual that they would have enough fair hardware that they could simply do an, an, a side upgrade, fully test there, and then cut over to that one. And so the ability to get those resources in the cloud, do that upgrade, do that massive amount of testing, and then when you're done, release those resources, as, as, we, as we always talk about with the cloud. I think is a beyond the availability of this systems manager script, this ability to do that testing in the cloud with resources that you you basically just take out and, and use for the time you need them is a, a, a great advantage to me. Yeah, it's a, it's a super big win. Uh, another component of talking about data uh, around um, SQL Server is the, the topic of always-on availability groups, and this is the ability to do replication of your database. And the good news is that you, when you're using Amazon RDS uh, with SQL Server, you can just click the radio button that says, yes, mirroring slash always-on, and it does it, which is nice. It sure does. Now, I always like to think about what's happening behind the scenes, not, not just – Workflow-wise, but how much hard-earned experience is literally encoded into those couple of letters in that that yes, and the number of ways that you can get this set up so it's working pretty well, but maybe there's a a failover condition you don't have a really awesome way to test for, and you you only learn those things when your infrastructure breaks. And so, to me, when you click that yes, you're saying I'd like to benefit from all these years of experience and the ability that we have to to test at scale and under just such a wide variety of different conditions that I, I think that's a, a really neat benefit we bring to our customers. For sure. And we've kind of uh, addressed some of those needs of uh, the DBAs amongst us, but let's talk about developers. And there is a huge community of developers out there who really enjoy developing in .NET and .NET Core has become a really uh, great platform for people to use. And we've given customers lots of options to deploy that. They can, of course, use use EC2 and containers, et cetera. But uh, Lambda tends to make it the easiest option really at this stage. Yeah, absolutely. And with, with Lambda, of course, you can run code in the cloud. And we, we launched Lambda with Python support originally and we, we've steadily added additional languages and language versions and runtimes. And at this point on the .NET side, our customers can choose from .NET Core 1.0, 2.0, or 2.1. And they, they can author, they've got the choice of, of three separate runtimes. And with the, with the first two, they can author their code in C-sharp. And with, with the 2.1, they can do C-sharp or they can do PowerShell. So they can build what are event-driven scripts with AWS Lambda. It's a very handy thing. And to kind of expand upon that experience, there is the .NET Dev Center. And, and this is really an aggregation and a special landing page where you'll find articles and code, projects, et cetera, to learn from. And let's face it, when you're doing development, learning by doing is the best way to do it. And one of the really coolest resources I found on this one was the uh, the 10-minute tutorials. And to just give a smattering of some of the topics of these tutorials, uh, there's things like using AWS Cognito in your .NET Core app, uh, integrating DynamoDB DAX into your ASP.NET application, deploying your first .NET application to ECS for Kubernetes, uh, using the AWS uh, security token service, how to encrypt your data and decrypt your data with AWS KMS on .NET. Like these are some, some really cool things. Most of them actually not running 10 minutes, but some of them going like three or four minutes. I think, Jeff, this is a, a pretty cool resource. 
is. And there's actually, I'm looking at the YouTube playlist right now. There's 33 separate videos in there. And I, I love this because developers can come on board the cloud. And if they've been building within the Microsoft ecosystem for years or decades, and they've, they've, they know everything there is to know about .NET, all that actually still applies. They can take that and they're able to, to run it in, run their code in a new environment. They can, they can use the same code or they can build new code that accesses all the different AWS resources through the, the thousands of different AWS API functions that we have. So this is an invitation to .NET developers. It says, come on over to the cloud. We, we've got a lot of great resources that are going to let you take a, a great advantage of all the skills you already have. Yeah, and it's just it's just so fast to get going that it's. I think that's what delights a lot of a lot of developers. Now let's move on to the infrastructure side, and it's going to be a, a, a double undifferentiated heavy lifting episode this this week because we are talking about licensing. And I don't know about you, Jeff, but in my world, licensing is nothing but undifferentiated heavy lifting. You kind of got to do it. Uh, it's complicated, and uh, you actually wrote a whole blog post about the AWS license manager that kind of helps customers do this in a more efficient and effective way. And it's really important on both sides. You want, as a customer, you want to make sure that you are staying in compliance with your license agreement because the, the vendors will be happy to track you down and to try to present you with a, a big bill if you're, if, you have, if you're using more licenses than you are, have rights to. But you don't want to over-license and you don't want to just be wasting money of these licenses in there that you're not using. So the license manager gives you the ability to put in your licenses, enter the, the rules, and then gives you the ability to actually track your utilization so you can fine-tune and just make sure you have exactly the number of licenses that are going to let you run your license software. Yeah, and the nice thing is this can work both on uh, on AWS but also on-premises as well. So you can kind of map between your EC2 instances and your other instances to get a, a holistic view of the world. Right. And I've kind of touched on EC2, but I, sh- I should also mention there are some, some configuration options on EC2 instances as well that can also help you uh, – uh, choose the number of cores that are exposed and the, the way that licenses get tied to CPUs or addresses. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wide and wonderful world licensing, isn't it, Jeff? And uh, at least having a few tweaks and options on the EC2 side mean you can often optimize your spend to get the right balance of licensing and performance. I, I would totally agree. And let's not discount this. I know you and I both like to come at, come at things from the, the tech side, but this making sure that you're running efficiently and within your rules and that you are getting the best value for your, your money. I think all, all super, super important to, to all, all AWS customers. Definitely, definitely. And uh, the last thing we'll talk about on this particular um, post, but there's, there's 11 different items of which we've only covered about half of them, is of course integration into existing uh, componentry that, that you can also run on the cloud. So obviously Amazon FSx for Windows Server was a huge win for customers because many customers run some very large file system and Windows file system uh, platforms that provide both the SMB protocol and an NTFS as well. And what we were able to do is to provide this for customers backed by SSD storage, give them fast, reliable performance, be able to configure it for replication, etc. Um, it's been super popular, hasn't it? It actually has. And um the funny thing is I'm clicking on my World of Windows um, post right now and I realized the link that says read my blog post is actually a busted link and I will need to fix that right after the podcast. <laughs> That's what we call real-time improvement. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's all software, so we can, we can fix those bits and we don't have gold disks and all those wonderful things of exactly. decades past. Exactly. The, the FXX for Windows Surfer has been a really interesting one because I know that uh, for a lot of – 
uh, my customers, just people I know who uh, who live in Australia, they're like, when's it going to be in Sydney, et cetera? And the, the day it came out, they're like texting me saying, oh, I've converted across, this is great. So it's, it's nice to see. And we also provide the AWS directory service. And this is really about uh, managed active directory that runs in the AWS cloud. So again, one of those uh, core components you kind of have to have, it's table stakes, but you probably don't want to have to look after it all the time. Exactly right. When you when you tell somebody let's go set up a new Active Directory, they don't just rub their hands together and say, "Yeah, this is awesome. I, I will work. I'll work as hard as I can, and I'll work <laughs> nights and weekends." Just because it's such a an amazingly enjoyable thing to do. It's 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 undifferentiated heavy lifting. It, it's just kind of uh, you, you got to do it, and you got to do it really really well, and you got to set up a lot of different moving parts, and you got to make sure that they continue to to work well together. But it's there, there's no joy. In doing it, it's just you got to you got to have it there, yeah. and um, we made it a lot easier with the AWS Directory service. And so let's let's just reflect for a moment. We'll get to an, a really old blog post in a, in a moment as well. But you know, this blog post is really uh, some some ten plus years since your original two thousand and eight post around providing that sort of full support for Windows and, and capabilities that that hadn't been available beforehand. In your travels and talking with lots of customers, and you get to speak to lots and lots in in, in your world, what's been the reaction about Windows on AWS in general? So, uh, before we had it, and we're going way, way, way back here, going back to, geez, I guess 2007, 2000, early 2008 at this point, it was one of those questions that people asked all the time. They said, okay, you've, you've got great support for Linux, but then they'd almost uh, kind of taunt us a bit and say, well, it's great you've got Linux, but there's really no way you could ever run Windows. That's never going to work. And but uh, we could we absolutely did make that work, and we, we we launched that way back in October of 2008, which just seems like a, a half of a lifetime ago <laughs> at this point. The thing to do is you. I always like love to look back at earlier posts, and everything looked so complete and fully formed at the launch. And you kind of think, yeah, we got it. We had all the amazing things that we needed to delight our customers at that point. But the reality is, it's only the beginning. That was just getting started, and I'd like to think of every one of these launches, we, we did our best to l- listen to customers early on, understand that first set of needs, but really make sure that we're opening up the communication with our customers and that we're saying, okay, here, here's our starting point. We know for sure there's a lot more things you'd love for us to do. And please tell us, tell, tell us where we need to go from here. And you look at just the, that, the, the blog post we were talking about and how many features and functions we've added to windows in just the last couple of years yeah yeah it's, it's that classic day one that day one mentality like uh, it's always day one and we always need to do better we always need to build more one of the projects i've always wanted to do that i've never quite figured out the right way to automate is i would love to take various kinds of services and instances and instance types and actually automate the generation of some kind of a family tree and just say here's where it started and then we, we, we go across time and here's how, basically in this almost evolutionary way, how, how these origins have evolved into far more sophisticated services over time. It's like the, the AWS service, the AWS service genealogy service. <laughs> exactly. And you, you think about the progression of instance types from the original M1 small up to today's plethora of instance types that we have and just how interesting it is that that the and you can think of all the different customer requests as effectively evolutionary pressure that's that said okay we're, we're going to select for this we're going to select for that and we will select for more cpu power we'll select for more 
more memory in comparison to CPU power, or we need uh, uh, better better I/O speeds in a certain kind of instance type. And just kind of think of how that has driven evolution. It would be just to, at least to me. I have this uh, this awesome imaginary picture in my head of how cool it could be that I could never actually manage to get down into a string. Absolutely. Well, I think I think that uh, if we think talking pictures again, kudos to Jerry Hargrove who who puts us all to shame in terms of our diagrammatic capabilities. I look, I look at his pictures that he draws and then I reflect on my whiteboarding skills where people think that my boxes look like teeth and other disparaging comments. And so uh, maybe Jerry has some ideas about how he might visualize that. I use pen and paper quite a bit. And I will tell you, Simon, that quite often I'll make little notes to myself and I will come back 10 minutes later and I cannot read my own handwriting. <laughs> Dr. Jeff Barr. <laughs> diagrams that he did. He one one day a couple of weeks ago he'd he'd been in in our Kumo building in Seattle he'd been there late at night and he had an elevator all to himself and one of the Amazon trademarks is that many of our elevators have all of the walls are whiteboards so when you've got a spontaneous idea you can just whiteboard it while you're riding the elevator Jerry had taken one of his diagrams and reproduced it in full fidelity with nice shading and high quality lettering and fonts. In the elevator, it was the coolest thing ever. I think he <laughs> tweeted that out. It was pretty neat just to see that, and to, it, and I think we both know that writing, writing on a, a flat surface on a horizontal surface is a lot easier than writing vertically. But mm. Jerry's got the skill. It, it looked just as great on the wall as it would on on a desk. A very talented individual. Now, if I'd done more pre-production, I would have uh, planned to have a, a special sound effect to take us back in time. So when I sort of type sounds because what we thought would be fun to do is to look back on a, a classic blog post from the past and reflect on what it means for customers today. And the one we're talking about today is uh, called Introducing the Amazon Simple Notification Service. This was back in 7th of April 2010. And uh, this is when you uh, you shared with the world what the team had been working on around this service. So maybe t- talk to us about what it was like writing that post then and, and what the customer reaction was there. And we'll spin forward to today. Well, this was really seen as an architectural component where where customers said we we are we've bought into the the model of building applications that are loosely coupled and with all these nice independently operating parts that need to communicate with each other. And the the model that they want to have is they want the publish and subscribe model where you've got publishers and receivers and they're somewhat decoupled. They're not really unaware of each other's existence, and so that the Subscribers can express interest in some, to- in some topics. The topics are named. And then the publishers can just drop messages on those topics. And then every one of the subscribers that is listening on a topic is able to get, get notified when a message appears. Now, this, this, the whole model of publish and subscribe wasn't new when we launched this. But most of the things that existed back then were just horrifically complex. And again, like some of the things we've already talked about, it wasn't something that you could set up in an afternoon. There was software to install and things to configure and somehow this very simple act of creating topics and subscribing and publishing was just it was buried in a mess of apis and xml and one of the things i think sns did was to just look through that mess and say what are the essentials and let's just let's put the essentials there in place that's let's give that to customers and then like we just talked about earlier let's keep iterating and listening and just keep delivering on all the additional features that our customers need. Yeah. So let's look at some of the basics that were there on, on day one. And of course you could 
you know, create a topic, you could add a permission, a subscriber could subscribe, and it also included the confirmation step as well. Uh, it, it also allowed you then call a publish function to post messages to the topic that would then talk to the subscribers. Pretty straightforward. Then there are a few other features like remove permissions, list the subscriptions, list the subscriptions by topics, etc. And the protocols that were supported were HTTP, HTTPS, email, or email JSON. So it's worth reflecting at this point. This is kind of like one of those classic things that we like to do with customers is give them something that's usable and functional and, and quite lovable. However, we want to hear what they need and get that iteration. So this was, a, this was one of those uh, great examples of that actually happening because it's changed a lot over time, hasn't it? Has and again, being able to see the family tree of where SNS started and just see the the list of things that we've added to it over the, the intervening um, nine years. Wow, that's twenty ten. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> scary. Huh? It's very very scary. I tell you to look at some of the dates on my older blog posts and just realize how long I've been at this. And uh, now I'm looking at this post and I can see I'm definitely no Jerry Hargrove as I've got this <laughs> diagram in the middle. <laughs> I, I, I would. I, I'm resisting the temptation to mock you on the diagram because I can do no better. But it is definitely one of those classics. I, I can picture Jeff sitting there drawing it uh, with uh, some pretty basic drawing tools. Got the message across though. Did the job. This was done with PowerPoint. Uh, just I, I recognize the way those rectangles are shaded. I'm pretty sure this yep. was PowerPoint, and I don't even know if it isn't, even has that style anymore. But it, it got the point across, and uh, it, it did its job for the time. So. So if we think about some of the things that we, we iterated on over that time, things like message filtering are now available. So you can choose about which messages you want to receive versus just getting all of them. Uh, there's some really strong message fan out capabilities to uh, different asynchronous event endpoints. Message encryption is obviously something very important. What is it that uh, Werner always says? Um, Dance like no one's watching and encrypt like everyone is. So uh, you can do that as well on, on SNS. And you even have uh, support for things like VPC endpoints uh, using AWS Private Link as well. So uh, you don't use any of the public internet endpoints as well. Um, one of the, the biggest features that I use all the time, because I'm a big fan of SNS and I use it all the time, is just the SMS, the simple messaging service capability, so that I can text myself when something happens that I need to pay attention to. You know, that wasn't there day one, was it? Right. And according to my post, we didn't even launch with console support. No, that's right. My post said, Point-and-click web-based user interface access and manage SNS. Wow, good thing we did that. So. <laughs> well, as I recall, in those days, in those days, uh, we would often uh, release something with just the API support, and then you know you, you got a console later, maybe. Uh, versus now, when you you get a very useful and functional console straight away uh, with some some cool design elements in it. So it's it's definitely changed a lot over time. Really, the minimum bar for getting something launched has gone up considerably over the years, and again. I, I almost hesitate to say this one more time, but it's because customers said it's not real until you've got the, the console there. Yeah, yeah. And so we're, we're, we, we listened and learned, and the, the minimum bar in almost every case is the console has to be there so the customers can get to it point and click. Correct, correct. And one of the nice things of looking back over one of these kind of long-lived services is to see just how it's improved in terms of capacity, capability, price, benefit as well. Uh, performance improvements are always happening under the covers. That's one of the nice things about this that's kind of not uh, apparent to customers nor need it be, but there's constantly optimization happening. You know, the, the, the code base and the the technologies behind uh, this service, for example, is not the same as it was in, uh, in 2010. Uh, it's probably better by every measure and that's driven by customer feedback and customer needs. So things like scale, 
uh, latency, performance, and then all these additional features all come together without having to change anything. So if you were someone who maybe developed an application back in 2010 uh, using these APIs, it could still be running. <laughs> no reason to change it. Undoubtedly. And that does speak to the power of APIs and the, the power of being very, very careful when you define APIs to say, let's let's pick and choose what we expose very, very carefully to make sure that we're not somehow blocking ourselves from the future. And in fact, one of the things that we ask ourselves every time we are about to launch something new, there's a very, very explicit question in, in the design documents called, are we going through any one-way doors? And we want to make sure that if we're making a decision that is essentially not, that doesn't have an undo button attached, we want to, we're, we're, we're totally okay doing that, but we want to make sure that we we know that we're doing that before we do it. And so we always ask ourselves in a, in a, in a routine and formal way, are we going through those one-way doors? And putting out a set of functionality within a service is, is effectively a, a one-way door. And we, we can't take it away from customers just because we decided that we, we gave away too much in the first API and exposed some internal details. So we're, we're, we're very, very careful and very thorough to decide on how we, what we expose and how we define the APIs. Yeah, it's, it's it's that concept of those long-lived services that are, are there for, for a long, long time and we want to make sure that customers can use them, can get the benefit from them and can rely on them for a long period of time. So it is, it is built into the DNA, that's for sure. One thing Andy Jassy says often is that we're, we're building an organization that should outlast each and every one of us. And so I, I think we think the same way with these services. You know, the, over the years, people have contributed to SNS and they've moved on to other teams within AWS and within Amazon and we've hired lots of new folks. And... But the, the service itself is still there and it's still fresh and it's still growing and we're still adding, adding new things to it. And so we, we, we do like that, that thinking for the long-term aspect of what we do. Yep, really important. And sometimes that comes with being misunderstood for long periods of time, as we say, but it's definitely worth it in the end. And uh, maybe, uh, Jeff, we should, uh, should tease something that's going to come up uh, la- later in the year around Tokyo Summit time. We have a, a lot of great listeners in Japan uh, it's, it's one of the wonderful things about doing this podcast is we have a global audience, just like your, your blog has a global audience. In fact, you can't travel anywhere now without being recognized somewhere. And so we're going to be putting together a little uh, special podcast event at the Tokyo Summit that for now we'll just say that people should look out for, but I'm, I'm looking forward to it, Jeff. I think it'll be fun. I am too. I, we had a great time together when we were live and in person at reInvent in that nice little room, if I remember. That's right. And I, I think we've got a bigger room and space for, for more more audience and more fans. So I think we're going to have a blast together. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Hey, Jeff, thanks so much for joining us again and, uh, and uh, looking forward and looking backwards at the same time. Great to catch up to you. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We do love to get your feedback. AWS Podcast at Amazon.com is the place for that. Also, reviews on your podcatcher of choice is good. And tell a friend that the podcast exists. Many people don't know. Uh, they should because it can be useful to you. Anyway, until next time, keep on building.